Charles Spurgeon once said this, Oh, that I could have the cross painted on my eyeballs and that I could not see anything except through the medium of my Savior's passion. Oh, Jesus, let me wear the pledge forever where it is conspicuous before my soul's eyes. And that's what Paul wants for the Colossian church. So turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Paul is writing to this church And he wants them to have the cross of Jesus painted on their eyeballs, if you will, so that they would view all of life through the passion of Jesus, through the cross of Jesus, that they would see the cosmic scope of what Jesus has done on the cross for all creation, that the cross would be conspicuous and loom large before their eyes. Now, recall that the Colossians were being lured away from the grace of God in truth by a group of false teachers. They were losing sight of grace, losing sight of the grace of God, the free favor of God given to sinners, not because of anything they do, but just because God is good and loving. They're losing sight of the free favor, the grace of God, which is most clearly demonstrated where? At the cross. The Colossians were being tempted to leave the hope of the gospel for a do more, try harder, pedal faster, sweat it out version of Christianity, which really is not Christianity at all, because it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone that we are saved, and not by anything that we do. And here I am, my voice is going out when I say that sentence. Spiritual warfare is real. Just as I'm beginning to say it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone that we are saved, not by anything that we do, my voice decides to go out again, two weeks in a row. The devil hates y'all. He doesn't want you to hear this. Here's our big idea today. Get this, devil. Grace, it isn't just our first name, it's our only hope. Grace isn't just our first name here at Grace Baptist Church. Grace is our only hope. The gospel just isn't our favorite word here. It's our only hope. And we must resist the temptation to drift from it. The church, just like Martin Luther and company in 1517, the church must always remain vigilant to not move away from the hope of the gospel, and that's what the Colossians were being tempted to do. So turn in your Bibles, if you haven't yet, to Colossians chapter 1, and look at verse 18. Hear the word of the Lord. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Did you notice all the ands, A-N-D-S, in these verses? And he is before, and in him, and he is, and through him, and, 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 and. I mean, what is this telling us? Answer, that there is always more to know of Jesus. 
There are so many more things to learn about our Savior. There are always deeper waters to dive into. No matter how long you have been a Christian, there is always more to know of Jesus in his word. It reminds me of someone who used to attend Grace, and they left because they said that there was only one sermon that I ever preached that they learned something in and was ministered to by. Their words. Only one sermon you've ever preached that I learned something and it kind of ministered to me. I'm not claiming to be the best preacher, but in the eight-ish years that this person was here, only one of my sermons ministered to them. Only one sermon they learned something, and that was from a sermon that I preached 11 years ago. In a series in Philippians. Listen, there is always so much more of Jesus to learn. We go further up and further into his word and into his gospel. Now, in contrast to that, it reminds me of one of my professors in seminary, Dr. Dwight Pentecost. He was widely known in his day, uh, written many books. I think we have a few in our library, actually. He refused to take a salary from Dallas Seminary. But the seminary said, we have to pay you something, Dr. P. So he said, you can pay me $1 every year. And he would get that check, and he wouldn't cash it, and he would stick it on this little cork board in his office. And so there were all these checks up there. Well, I attended a very small church during seminary with Dr. P., as we called him, Dr. Pentecost. And he told me once that there was only one sermon that our pastor, Dave Amstutz, There was only one sermon that our pastor preached where he didn't learn something new. This brilliant man of God who knew his Bible forwards and backwards was still learning into his 80s. I took him for a a class in the Gospels. And when he began the class, this is what he told us. He said, this is my 50th time teaching this class. He never used notes. This was the only book he brought to class. And he would set it down and teach a whole semester on the Gospels. But Dr. P knew that no matter what, how many degrees he had, or how much he knew the Bible, or how many times he had taught the Gospel class, he knew there was always more to learn of Jesus. I mean, what do you see here in Colossians 1 that we've looked at? He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. All things were created by him, for him, through him. Do you think you could reach a place in your life where you fully comprehend this majestic, all-powerful creator come back from the dead Savior? I don't think so. We will forever be learning of God. We will never fully comprehend God, even in eternity In eternity, there will always be more to learn of Jesus. But then after describing how infinitely glorious and majestic uh, our Savior is, Paul then goes on to mention the church. The church? Really, Paul? I mean, it's kind of anticlimactic to mention the church after you mention this all-glorious creator, Savior, Jesus. I mean, three verses detailing the supremacy of Jesus over all creation, his supremacy over all things physical and in the spiritual realm, and Paul decides to bring up the church. He brings us up. He brings up Grace Baptist Church. He goes from this all-powerful, sovereign God who created all things to us. Kind of a letdown, isn't it? Well, it could be a letdown. But when you understand who this supreme Jesus is 
and just how connected he is to his church, it's not a letdown because Jesus would have it no other way. When people bring up his name, Jesus wants them to also bring up his church, his bride. So it's not a letdown at all because this is why Jesus came, to redeem a people, to redeem the church. He identifies with us. He is happy to be head of the body, as Paul says here. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus is the head of the body? It means that he has all authority over his church. It means that his word calls the shots. It means that he makes the rules that govern his church and govern his world. He is preeminent, Paul says. He comes first. He gets all the glory here. He gets all the glory in the universe because he is the beginning. And he is the firstborn from the dead. Well, what does that even mean? Firstborn from the dead. It sounds like a zombie movie, doesn't it? It means that he is the first human being with a resurrected, glorified body. Now, people were raised from the dead in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, but they all died again. Not so with Jesus. He is the first person to go through death and come out victorious on the other side, sporting a new, resurrected, glorified body. He's the firstborn from the dead. And as the God-man, Paul tells us here that God was pleased to dwell in him. In verse 19, all that is in God, all that was in God is in Jesus. All that is in God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. In other words, God had a smile on his face, if you will, when Jesus took on human flesh on that first Christmas morning. We looked at that in our Christmas series on the incarnation. You can go back and listen to those if you haven't. But God was not just pleased to dwell in Jesus. Paul tells us that God is also pleased to reconcile us and to reconcile all of his creation. Listen, Christian, God was pleased to reconcile you with himself. You, a sinner, living in rebellion, undeserving, and through Jesus, God was pleased to be reconciled with you. Pleased to reconcile you to himself. It brought him much joy to see you made right with him. God loves being at peace with sinners. But not just sinners, even sinful creation too. Paul tells us that Jesus reconciled all creation, all things through his cross. Well, how can all things be reconciled to Jesus? I mean, what does that even mean? How are trees reconciled to God? How are German shepherds reconciled? How are ladybugs reconciled? I mean, what does that even look like? Well, here's what Paul is saying. Jesus will bring about true and peaceful order to his creation again when he returns. He will usher in shalom. That's the Hebrew word that means peace, wellness, wholeness, harmony. That's what the Garden of Eden was like. God was thoroughly enjoyed and worshipped. Creation was enjoyed. All human relationships were pleasurable. All human relationships with the animal kingdom were pleasurable and right. All was well. That's what Jesus will usher in when he returns, when things are finally reconciled. Everything will be brought back into proper order. Think of it this way. We speak of reconciling the books in finances, don't we? 
That's what Paul has in mind here. Everything will be reconciled. Everything will be put back in order as it was in the Garden of Eden, only it will be better than the Garden of Eden. This reconciliation that Jesus has secured through his cross is not a return to Eden. It will actually be better than that. And the Hebrew term for Eden is the word for pleasure. It's the garden of pleasure. So we're not just going back to the garden of pleasure. It's going to be better than the garden of pleasure. Nancy Guthrie says this. Fortunately, however, the story that began in Eden did not end there. God's plan for his world and his people could not be thwarted by human sin. God is, even now, working out his plan to do far more than simply restore his creation to the state of integrity that was Eden. Christ came to accomplish what was necessary to open the way for us, not just back into the Garden of Eden, but into a home that will be even better than Eden and a life that will be even better than the life Adam and Eve enjoyed there. Can you imagine that? They lived in perfection. We're going to get something that's better than perfection. Jesus came to reconcile and to make right all things. This is why all creation must be included in this reconciliation. Because if there's no reconciliation of all creation, then the cross is enough. What Jesus has done is enough. If all Jesus did was die in order to save sinful human beings, then the cross is enough. He paid the penalty for our sins. He satisfied the justice of God. The end. So if that's all that Jesus came to do, to simply fix our sin problem, then the cross is enough. It could end there with atonement. We really don't even need resurrection if that's all it was because he paid the penalty for our sin. But Jesus cares for his creation and he cares for your body. So his resurrection proves that he cares not just for your spirit or your soul, not just to offer you forgiveness of sins, but he cares for and he reconciles your body and all of creation as well. He came not simply to forgive sin, he came to heal and restore his broken creation, which includes you and which includes the planet Saturn and humpback whales and black widows and your favorite pet dog named Skippy. Jesus cares about all his creation. So he is going to reconcile all things. Now, this is important to understand. That doesn't mean that every sinner will be reconciled. Sinners can only do that in this life, and then it's too late. A human being can only place their trust in Christ in this life. Otherwise, it's too late. So Paul is not saying here that Jesus has made every person right with God because there is a hell There is eternal punishment for anyone who doesn't trust in Christ. Paul's not saying that every sinner is reconciled. What he's saying is that Jesus is going to reconcile or fix his creation. He's going to make all things new, restore things, which includes your human body. This cross-reconciliation is very physical because salvation is very physical. Christians have lost their understanding that salvation is physical. Our salvation is very, very, very physical. When God began the process of salvation with you, he wasn't just interested in the spiritual. He wasn't just interested in your soul or your spirit, whichever word you want to use. God wants your body too. 
Because what does Paul say in Romans chapter 8? For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. What did Paul say? The redemption of our what? Our bodies. Because we have the first fruits. We're, we have the Spirit now. We're waiting the redemption of our bodies. Not simply the salvation of your spirit, and that's it, but the redemption of your body, too. Paul says, in this hope we were what? Saved. So understand this. Salvation is not complete until you are resurrected and standing on the new earth. Salvation is not complete until you can take your little toes and wiggle them into that green, green grass on the new earth. Then salvation will be complete. When you come up out of the grave in a brand new body and you can wiggle your toes in the grass, you can feel them, the sand in between your toes on the beach as you feel the water crashing up your shins, salvation is not complete until that day. When you're on the beach and the water's crashing on your, your shins and you see a pterodactyl fly by in the sky and you turn around and there's a T-Rex looking at you. And he's not going to eat you because Jesus is going to reconcile the dinosaurs too. And you thought heaven was going to be boring? Salvation is not just about going to heaven when you die. It is about the coming together again of your spirit and your body in resurrection. Salvation is about the redemption of your body too, not just your spirit. And it will happen at Jesus' final coming. And it includes all things on this planet and Mars and Saturn, all the way to galaxies way out there in space that we have yet to discover. But it's not just cosmic. It's for the Colossians too. It's for the single mom in the Colossian church who's just trying to make it another day. It's for the man in the Colossian church who hates his job but gets up every day and goes to that job anyway because he wants to provide for his family. It's for the student in the Colossian church who stays up way too late doing homework so they can get a good grade in calculus. This salvation, this hope, this gospel is for the Colossians and it's for you too. Notice the you when we read verses 21 to 23. That you is you. Paul's talking about you. It's plural. He's talking about us, but he's talking about you too. Look at verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Those yous are plural in the original Greek language. But Paul is also speaking to individual disciples. Individual disciples who make up Colossae Baptist Church. He's talking to the Colossians, but he's also talking to the Santa Marians too, or the Orcadians. What is it? What do you Orchid people call yourselves? Better than Santa Marians? I don't know. You at least say, we're not Bakersfield, right? I don't know. What, what, what do Orchid 
people call themselves? Orchid people? You know, he's speaking to you, orchid people, too. I just lost half the congregation right there. We all fell with Adam and became sinners, so we, too, were alienated from God, just like the Colossian church. We, too, were hostile in our thinking about him. We, too, were doing bad stuff, but now God has reconciled us, disciples here at Grace Baptist Church, through the crucified body of his son, Jesus. Through his atoning, bloody death, we are now justified. We are declared righteous. We are blameless before him. Paul Tripp said, every day you preach to yourself the gospel of self-atonement or the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ. This is what the Colossians were trying to do. Get atonement through doing more, trying harder, peddling faster, sweating it out, instead of receiving the free grace of God in Christ. They were drifting from the gospel, Paul says. That's what we try to do. We either try to make our way to God through self-atonement, or the atoning work of Jesus. We either try to clean ourselves up through self-atonement by trying to be good enough. And the only way to clean yourself up is through the bloody, messy, atoning work of Christ. You have to understand this about the cross of Christ. When Paul talks about the cross of Christ, this is what is in his mind. Because we tend to have a sterilized, cleaned up view of it. Atonement is messy. Atonement, which the Hebrew word kapur means, uh, it just means having your sins covered over. Atonement is a bloody, messy, stinky business. We are redeemed, Paul says, by the blood of his cross, which means it was gory. Atonement is always gory. The prophet Isaiah said in chapter 52 that Jesus' appearance was marred beyond human semblance. That Jesus was so bloody and ripped apart, hanging on the cross, that he didn't even look human. That they looked up and said, what is that thing? And so the way to God is gory and horrible and gruesome and messy and nasty and repulsive and drippy and bloody and smelly. We see this with the sacrifices under the Old Testament sacrificial system. Yes, they would have given off a good smell because it was like a barbecue. The smell of tri-tip and steak as they put the animals on the altar. But there would also be smells that weren't so pleasant because death is smelly. And there would be flies everywhere and there would be blood. Lots and lots and lots and lots of blood. Worship at the tabernacle and then later at Solomon's temple was bloody. It was gruesome. Worship is bloody and gory because the way to peace with the holy God centers around what we call substitutionary atonement. That means that something or someone dies in your place and sheds their blood to cover over, to wash, to forgive your sins. God's wrath against our sin is appeased through substitutionary atonement as blood is shed. That means that worship at the tabernacle and worship at the temple was bloody and, quite frankly, pretty gross. It was nasty. Old Testament scholar Ralph Davis says this, describing atonement. He said, readers should be aghast. The text says atonement is horrible. It is gory. Atonement is never nice, but always gruesome. We need to see this for we easily fall into the trap of regarding atonement as merely a doctrine, a concept, 
an abstraction to be explained, a bit of theology to be analyzed, or little better, to view it as a moving story to be replayed during Passion Week. But we should know better. Surely the Israelite worshiper realized this when he towed a young bull to the tabernacle and had to slit its throat, skin it, cut it in pieces, and wash the insides and legs. It was all mess and gore. From slicing the bull's throat in Leviticus 1 all the way to Calvary, God has always said atonement is nasty and repulsive. Christians must beware of becoming too refined, longing for a kinder, gentler faith. If we've grown too used to Golgotha, perhaps God's word can shock us back into truth. Atonement is a drippy, bloody, smelly business. The stench of death hangs heavy wherever the wrath of God has been quenched. The Bible makes it very clear in both the Old and New Testaments that the way to God is gory and horrible and gruesome and messy and nasty and repulsive and drippy and bloody and smelly. This is what it looked like for those who lived in ancient Israel and worshipped Yahweh at either the tabernacle or Solomon's temple. They could draw near and enjoy communion with Yahweh through atonement, but it was bloody and gruesome. Blood had to be shed in order to commune with God. You would take your little girl to worship in her nice little dress and come home and be like, you got blood on it. And she'd be like, that's because atonement is gory, mama. I know you bought me this Easter dress, but you know what? It's a reminder to me, this stain, that the God I love and serve is holy. And the only way I can be made right with him is if that animal sheds its blood in my place. We, we raise and process chickens. And let me tell you what, man, there's a lot of blood in chickens. Okay, If you ever want to go with me sometime, I'll let you know. Slicing a chicken's neck is very eye-opening. Blood goes everywhere. This is as close as I've got to Old Testament worship. And so my eyes have been opened even more to realize this is what the Israelites had to do. The animal is kicking and screaming and squirming. And you have to take the knife and slit its throat. To be restored to and enjoy fellowship with God, something repulsive has to happen. Blood has to be shed. Why? Because atonement is bloody. Because forgiveness costs something or someone their life. Because without the shedding of blood, the Bible tells us there is no forgiveness of sin. So why all the blood? Because God is holy. Because God is pure. He is without sin. He is infinitely glorious. And he demands perfection from every one of us. And none of us can be perfect. Listen, it's because we're sinners. And listen, we are not going to downplay sin in this church. We're going to let the law of God do its work and let it expose us as the sinners that we are. We are going to call sin, sin. We've actually had people leave this church because we called them sinners. We've had people leave and tell us that they were leaving because we called their precious little child a sinner. The Bible calls your precious little child a sinner. Jesus calls your precious little child a sinner. We will not be soft on sin in this church because God is not soft on sin. Jesus got dirty with our sins and shed his real blood for us. So we're not going to be soft on sin. Sin is repulsive to God and it should be repulsive to us. Sin is repulsive to God. 
and it should be repulsive to us. And that's why we talk about forgiveness all the time here at Grace, because that's why Jesus came, to die in our place for our repulsive sin. Just because we talk about God, the gospel all the time here, and just because we talk about God's grace and his unmerited favor that he gives freely to sinners, just because we talk about that all the time and celebrate forgiveness all the time does not mean that we are soft on sin. We talk about the gospel all the time because God is not soft on sin, because it costs Jesus his life to deal with our repulsive sin. The reason there's so much blood at the tabernacle and at the temple is because God is holy and we are sinners and the only way that we can make it back to the new Eden to come is through blood. Why all the blood? Because we are sinners and we deserve to die. But God in his mercy, because he wants to be near us, to be with us, he has made a way possible through substitutionary atonement. So the way to God is gory and horrible and gruesome and messy and nasty and repulsive and drippy and bloody and smelly. I wish someone would write a worship song that highlighted this truth. I would love to sing, oh, the cross, so gruesome and horrible. Oh, the cross, so nasty and repulsive. Oh, the cross, so gory and messy. Oh, the cross, so drippy and smelly. Imagine singing that. That's what we're singing when we sing about the cross. We should be thinking it was gruesome and horrible and nasty and repulsive and gory and messy and drippy and smelly. Because that's what Paul is talking about here. Making peace by the blood of his cross. Being reconciled in the body of his flesh by his death. It was a bloody, messy cross. But there's beauty in a bloody, messy cross. As Jerry Bridges said, however, as we contemplate with wonder Christ being made sin for us, we must always keep in mind the distinction between Christ's sinlessness in his personal being and his sin bearing in his official liability to God's wrath. He was the sinless sin bearer. Though he was officially guilty as our representative, he was personally the object of the Father's everlasting love and delight. Even as Jesus hung on the cross, bearing our sins and enduring the full fury of God's wrath, he was at the same time the object of his Father's infinite, eternal love. Should this not make us bow in adoration at such matchless love that the Father would subject the object of his supreme delight to his unmitigated wrath for our sake? That's what Paul means when he says in verse 19 that God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things through the cross. The father took pleasure in seeing his son show his love for us at the cross because this was the fulfillment of the eternal plan of God. So of course God the father is pleased with his son at the cross. In fact, I would dare say that the father was never more pleased with Jesus than at the cross. The cross was, in fact, Jesus' ultimate act of obedience. So if ever God the Father could say, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, it was at the cross, the crowning point of his life. Not to mention the Old Testament sacrifices 
we're told in Leviticus, were a sweet-smelling aroma to God. So how much more was Christ's sacrifice a sweet-smelling aroma and a delight to his Father? What does Paul say in Ephesians 5, 2? And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Far from being something that God the Father looked away from, Jesus' death was a fragrant, sweet-smelling sacrifice. God was thrilled to see his son Jesus bearing the curse and paying the penalty for our sin. Why? Because it was the Father's eternal plan. It was the eternal plan of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To bruise and crush Jesus on the cross. As the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Trinity that Jesus would go to the cross. So far from the Father turning his face away, the Father turned toward his Son and said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. In fact, the word will in Isaiah 53, the Hebrew word means pleasure or delight. The New King James translation captures it. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. This was the moment in Jesus' life where God the Father was, if you will, proud of him, proud of his Son. Everything that Jesus did in his life pleased his Father. But this moment is what every other moment in his life was preparing him for. And so why such a bloody death? Verse 22 tells us. Are you ready? Get this. Here's why. In verse 22. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Jesus died so that we could stand in God's presence and not be obliterated by his white-hot holiness. We are holy, which just means that we are set apart. We, we belong to Jesus now. We be, belong to him, and we are blameless before him, which means the hard drive has been wiped clean. We are above reproach. We're forgiven. We can't be accused. We can't be condemned. We are accepted. We are as holy and pure before God as Jesus is. We are as holy and pure and blameless before God the Father as his son Jesus is. Holy, blameless, without reproach. That, that could be your social media bio. You want to put something underneath your name on Twitter and Instagram or Facebook? Just put holy, blameless, without reproach. That's the gospel. And remarkably, the Colossian church was drifting from that good news. They're in danger of welcoming a false gospel. This is why Paul says in verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, in your trust in Jesus. He's not saying they can lose their salvation because no one can lose their salvation. If you could lose your salvation, you would have lost it last week because I know you did some pretty bad things last week. And if you don't think you did some pretty bad things last week, you probably don't understand the holiness of God. No one can lose their salvation because Jesus keeps those who are his. He's not losing any that the Father has given to him. What Paul is saying is that if the Colossians continue to follow these false teachers and turn away from the gospel, 
turn away from the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus, then they will prove that they never really believed it at all. The false teachers that invaded their church were causing the Colossians to doubt their salvation, telling them they need to seek something more. And so they were stealing their hope. But that's the whole point of this letter. Paul is trying to restore their hope in the gospel because they're in danger of shifting from the hope of the gospel. As he says in verse 23, he's reminding them that they heard and they understood the grace of God in truth. He's writing to remind them about the cross where we see the grace of God. So grace isn't just our first name, it's our only hope. The only hope a tired mom has on Sunday morning after spending the week scrolling through Instagram and seeing post after post of all those perfect moms, the only hope she has is grace. The only hope a man enslaved to pornography has is grace. The only hope a bitter, angry, resentful person has is grace. The only hope that tired parents have is grace. The only hope a teenager who feels unloved and feels like a total failure has is grace. The only hope any weary sinner who is tired of dancing with, flirting with, and entertaining their darling sins has is grace. Grace, it's all we got. And it's all we need. And it's all we'll ever need. And God gives it freely to people like us. To sinners and only to sinners. And if you can't stomach the fact that you are a sinner and that you desperately need a Savior, then the gospel will not be good news to you. It's a stumbling block to the world, right? Unbelievers, they don't get it. They don't get it. Even some church people don't get it. As Robert Capon said, for no matter how much we give lip service to the notion of free grace and dying love, we do not like it. It is just too indiscriminate. It lets rotten sons and crooked tax farmers and common tarts into the kingdom, and it thumbs its nose at really good people. And it does that gallingly for no more reason than the gospel's shabby exaltation of dumb trust over worthy works. See, the world thinks our faith and trust in Jesus is just this dumb trust. They don't understand it. It's too easy. Dumb trust. In contrast to what they would say is worthy works, that they've earned their way to God because they're a good person. They're working their way up to God. The world seeks a ladder to climb up to God. But we're so messed up, we couldn't even make it on the first step of the ladder. And so God had to come down to us. Listen, ladders don't save. You can't be saved by climbing a ladder to God. But you can be saved by the Son of God who climbed down from heaven and then climbed up on a cross for all of your repulsive sins. That will save you. Having dumb trust in that will save you. Because on the cross, God opens the door to heaven to rotten sons and crooked tax farmers and common tarts if they come with the empty hands of faith. But if you try to go to God with any of your works... He'll snub his nose at you. You can't be good enough no matter how hard you try. The only way into heaven is by looking to the bloody, grotesque, sickening, nauseating Savior hanging on a Roman cross and not turning away in disgust, but looking upon him and worshiping. That's faith. Looking upon a disfigured Savior who looked like a piece of raw meat and worshiping 
and being in awe, seeing tendons exposed, blood everywhere, bone visible, coagulation, muscle, tissue, strips of skin hanging off his body, shredded to pieces, looking at him and worshiping, looking at him in awe and wonder and amazement and saying, is that really a human being? That can't be. What is that thing on the cross? And then saying, that's my savior. That's who? That's my treasure. The one my soul loves. Let's pray. Jesus, the world doesn't understand it. But we do look upon you on the cross, disfigured, bloody, grotesque, dying in our place for our repulsive sins. And we say in that moment, Jesus, you are beautiful. You are beautiful as our Savior hanging on the cross. And you are beautiful as our Savior who came back from the dead, the firstborn from the dead with a resurrected glorified body. And we will sing that you are beautiful for eternity, for you and you alone have captured our hearts. I pray that your Holy Spirit would stuff this good news, the gospel, down into every nook and cranny of our hearts so that we would be in awe. We would be awestruck. We'd have eyes of wonder and astonishment that you would give your life for people like us. Help us to see you as you are and to be in awe. In your name we pray.